Good morning. And welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. I'm Susan Thompson, President of the Board of Trustees and your lay leader today. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we're glad you're here. I would like to extend a special welcome to the visitors here this morning. If you have been coming for a while and you would like to make First UU your spiritual home, we would love to have you join our congregation. Please speak to the friendly and knowledgeable people at the visitor's table about how to go about doing that. We come from a long heritage that there is a spark of the divine in every one of us. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I ask you to greet the holy in our midst while welcoming the persons seated around you this morning. Uh, please join me in reading the words for lighting this chalice, which we can find in our order of service. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Often people may ask us what Unitarian Universalism is all about. Often people may ask us what happens at First UU Church of Austin. And we can respond by repeating together, We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Our reading this morning is by a UU minister called, his name is Christopher Buse, and it is entitled, Are You Saved? Occasionally, I'm stopped on the street and asked the question, Are you saved? Even though I'm a minister, I'm never sure how to reply. Then I remember a story from my own childhood. When I was a child, Four or five years old, I took my brother's pocket knife and began carving some words into the wooden headboard of my bed. When my mother discovered my creative work, she was justifiably angry. I think normally vandalism of furniture would have gotten me into deep trouble. But my mother was a minister's wife, and the words I had carved into the bed were, Jesus loves me. In this kind of situation, it is true that Jesus saves. <laughs> of course, I was not saved only by Jesus. I was saved by a mom who knew how to balance accountability with forgiveness. I imagine that it's difficult to know how to discipline your children when their religious expression does damage to the furniture. But through a gentle talk... My mom was able to help me see the error of my ways, and I changed my behavior for the better. Another time I was saved was when I was swimming in the ocean. I went out into water way over my head and was caught in the undertow. Fortunately, my brother Sam noticed I was struggling. He jumped into the water and came out to get me. He hauled me into shore. Once again, I was saved by grace, both human and divine. When I hear the word saved, I think of being rescued from danger, delivered from evil, pr protected from harm. And in many ways, I have been saved. Sometimes this 
Experience of salvation has a human hand in a person's face. At other times I encounter it when I am alone in the woods and there's no sound except the whispering of the wind playing in the leaves or water flowing over rocks in a stream. And as I remember these things, I know the answer to the question, Are you saved? Yes, I reply. I'm definitely saved. When we walk in here into the sanctuary each Sunday, the soles of our shoes are not just supporting the weight of our bones and our flesh. They're bringing in with us the weight of all that we carry throughout our weeks. Our joys, our triumphs, our sorrow, our grief, and our causes for celebration. So we come together and we have candles here along this beautiful window wall. And during our musical meditation, you're invited to light a candle with one of those joys or sorrows in mind and let the smoke carry it up into the very air that we breathe so that we might all take it in and lessen your burden some and celebrate and grieve with you. I invite you all to do so. Meg has introduced recently this uh, little loving kindness Buddha, Buddhist, excuse me, um, meta meditation to you all. And it's so wildly popular that we've been getting requests to bring it back. And so I have gladly agreed. It's printed in your order of service. So we'll end this time of musical meditation and candlelight reflection with this loving kindness meditation from the Buddhist tradition. I'll say a line and you'll repeat it after me if you choose to do so. The first time through, we say it for ourselves. We direct the words inward. May I be free from danger. May I be mentally happy. May I be physically happy. May I have ease of well-being. Now the second time through, we say it for someone that we love. So picture them in your mind's eye and we place the eye with you. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. This third one is the most difficult, challenging spiritual meta-meditation of the three. Um, we say it for someone uh, with whom we have, uh, against whom we have a resentment, with whom we have maybe a grudge or some anger. So get that person in your mind's eye and let's let's try this. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. 
May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. Amen. Well done. Are you saved? How many of you have either found your way to this religious community from another or have remained you, you, partly due to this question arising at some point somewhere in your lifetime? I know I can raise my hand, yes. One of my earliest memories of exposure to Christian fundamentalism occurred when I was in the fifth grade in Odessa, Texas. We called it lovingly slow death Texas. <laughs> I was out on the playground, and one of my PE coaches overheard me mention something about my church when she asked me what church I belonged to. I told her that I attended the Little Unitarian Universalist Fellowship across the street from the high school. I remember her asking me a few more questions about my church with judgmental furrowed brows, and I did my best to answer them with my 10-year-old comprehension of this faith when she leaned down and said, It sounds like you worship the devil. (laughs) With my best smart-alecky tone, which I had mastered by age 10, put my hand on my hip, and with my limited understanding of the word worship at that time, I answered, actually, I don't worship anyone. And I skipped off to knock on my mother's classroom window, which faced the playground. (laughs) That PE coach lived to regret her comments. (laughs) Just barely. No, just kidding, of course. My mom is not that scary. This is the age-old question of who is in and who is out. It reminds me of a song written by one of my favorite Austin folk singers, Casey Crowley, in which she sings defiantly, I sin, I sin, I sin, but I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. Yes, it's the question of who gets into heaven, to which our universalist forebears have through the centuries answered a resounding, although at times dissonant, in terms of the estimated time of arrival. They said, everyone, everyone is in. That is, if there is a heaven, of course. (laughs) Heck, even our Unitarian side hasn't always made nice with the idea of damnation. As the Reverend Thomas Starr King once said of the Universalists and the Unitarians, respectively. The one thinks that God is too good to damn them forever, and the other thinks they are too good to be damned forever. (laughs) (coughs) This idea is not by any means a new one, though. In fact, one of Christianity's early church fathers, Origin of Alexandria, as early as the year 225, wrote in his famous work On First Principles that as God's love was a perfect expression of love, wrath could not possibly, um, could not be a possibility at all as a final expression of that love toward anyone because it was a perfect expression of love. Personally, I've always 
found it a rather perfect expression of human arrogance to believe that humans could surpass a supposedly divine, purely divine love in our capacity toward love and forgiveness. If we can do it, certainly God can do it. God can forgive. And, and most parents get this. Parents of violent criminals have found ways of continuing to love their children despite horrific things they've done. Even some children understand this concept. My friend Karen's six-year-old daughter, Kyla, recently declared, these are you, you kids, I'm proud of them. (laughs) She said, I love Spencer, her teddy bear, and Daddy and Mop her nickname for her mom. Her mother asked, and Pook? That's her nickname for her sister. Yes, Kyla answered. They continued, do you love Debbie? Yes. And do you love Andy? Yes. Do you love Joe? Who's Joe? (laughs) Just seeing if you're paying attention, her mom said. I do love him, but I don't know who he is. Because you love everyone, Karen asked. "Uh Uh-huh. And because tomorrow we're honoring the life and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I thought I'd bring him into the room a little bit by reading you some from his sermon, Love Your Enemies. If you think, if you listen to these words and think about who his enemies were and what he witnessed them doing and what he endured and lived through and was working toward, it takes on a significant, significantly deeper meaning. He said, Now there's a final reason I think that Jesus says, Love your enemies. It is this. That love has within it a redemptive power. And there's a power there that eventually transforms individuals. Just keep being friendly to that person. Just keep loving them. And they can't stand it too long. Oh, they react in many ways in the beginning. They react with guilt, feelings, and sometimes they'll hate you a little bit more at that transition period. But just keep loving them. And by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's love, you see. It's redemptive, and that's why Jesus says love. There's something about love that builds up and is creative. There's something about hate that tears down and is destructive. So, love your enemies. For over 300 years after Origen's writing, early Christians were free to believe in an all-loving, all-forgiving God without consequence, until the year 553, when an ecumenical council got together and decided that such belief was heresy and a threat to the church. Then it became dangerous to have that belief. The controversy, however, did not end with origin. Instead, I guess you could argue that this controversy originated with origin. Okay, never mind. Bad joke. But, <laughs> but in truth, universalist thought can be traced in this country to pre-revolutionary times 
One of my favorite stories is of the Universalist evangelist, Reverend John Murray. You may have heard this story before. It's a good one. He was an Englishman whose ship was stranded on a New Jersey sandbar in 1770, and he was cajoled into preaching universal salvation by a local farmer. It was the, if you build it, they will come kind of thing. This farmer had this vision that if he built a chapel on his farmland, that God would send him a preacher to talk about universal salvation to his friends and neighbors. And then here stranded is a universalist preacher from England. John Murray is credited for beginning the universalist movement here in the so-called New World as he covered so much ground and spoke with such extemporaneous passion the universalist doctrine that he had learned from the Reverend James Relly of London. This loving message was considered quite dangerous to some, as loving messages almost always seem to be, and Murray narrowly escaped several lynching attempts, sustained worship services disrupted by mobs coming to kill him, and once scarcely dodged a large rock that flew through a church window aimed at his head. And some say rock, some say brick, but the thing happened, and it's written that he took it, picked it up, hardly missing a beat, and declared before the congregation, this argument is solid and it is weighty. <laughs> But it's neither rational nor convincing. (laughs) During the revolution, Murray served as a military chaplain. And due to his universalist theology, he wasn't taken too seriously. He found himself defending the legitimacy of his ministry even among the carnage of war. General Washington himself had to take it upon himself to write the brigade and say, quote, The Reverend Mr. John Murray is appointed chaplain to the Rhode Island regiments and is to be respected as such. Murray's charisma and travel may have earned him the re- recognition as the founder of American Universalism, but he was actually preceded by George de Beneville, who was preaching Universalism in Philadelphia in the Philadelphia area, in 1741. Caleb Rich also founded a church in Massachusetts in 1773. The famed 19th century universalist Hosea Ballou, who's famous this morning for loving mud, was his protege. Ballou is responsible for the concept of ultra-universalism. Every time I hear this, I think it needs to be in neon lights. Ultra-universalism is the idea that there is no hell at all, that humankind would receive punishment for any wrongdoing in this lifetime and and in, in all the unhappiness that it brings in this life. And this was quite the contrary to other universalists at the time. They were the majority. They were known as the restorationists. And those who be, they were those who believed that if you sinned, you would undergo a period of punishment 
after death before all souls were eventually restored to God, kind of a purgatory idea. These mainstream universalists believed that without some fear of consequence, people would have no incentive toward ethical behavior. They condemned Baloo, saying, Nine-tenths of Brother Baloo's society are infidels who retain nothing of Christianity but the name. (laughs) Perhaps with all of this early hostility toward universalism, including all this infighting amongst universalists, it shouldn't come as a surprise when over 200 years later, there continues to exist such open hostility toward the idea of an all-loving God as witnessed in the calls to repent on billboards everywhere. Do you all remember this? Um, in, all over the country, this May 21st Judgment Day debacle that happened a couple years ago. And the recent reaction to evangelical Christian Rob Bell's new book titled, Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. How's that for a title? (laughs) Reverend Rob Bell, a fairly young, charismatic minister of a megachurch in Michigan that brings in a crowd of 7,000 each Sunday, he speaks of the moment in 2007 when he began to consider that God so loved every person who ever lived that he sent his only son to redeem them all, Christian and otherwise. At a church art show, promoting peace, that's the best part, promoting peace, a church member had left a note adjacent to a piece featuring a quote by Gandhi. This little sticky note said, reality check, he's in hell. (laughs) Really, he recalls thinking, Gandhi's in hell, he is. We have confirmation of this. Somebody knows this, without a doubt, and that somebody decided to take on the responsibility of letting the rest of us know. As did Murray and his contemporaries, Bell remains unapologetically Christian and convinced of the atonement of sins in Christ's death but wonders how a loving God could damn all but a select few who have come to accept this reality in a particular way before death. What if the missionary gets a flat tire, he asks. Even with so much in common theologically with those aforementioned fellas in New England and Pennsylvania, Bell is careful, very to never call himself or his theology universalist. The reaction to his book, even prior to its release date, was a firestorm of evangelical Christian bloggers and ministers alike. Time magazine, whose cover read in big letters at the time, What If Hell Doesn't Exist, reported that when Love Wins reached the internet, when word of it reached the internet, one conservative evangelical pastor, John Piper, tweeted, Farewell, Rob Bell, unilaterally attempting to evict Bell from the evangelical community. 
R. Albert Moeller, Jr., president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, says Bell's book is, quote, theologically disastrous. He goes on, any of us should, any one of us should be concerned when a matter of theological importance is played with in a subversive way. And in North Carolina, Chad Holtz, a young pastor, was fired by his church for endorsing the book. Although Bell doesn't call himself a universalist, his opponents sure have. In their tone, universalism sounds like, ironically, the most condemnable heresy. The way some of these blogs read, you would think that the meaning of universalist had something to do with cannibalism. Why does this concept still cause so much of an uproar? It has something to do with the power one may wield through condemnation. That's my guess. But universalism was once one of the nation's largest faith traditions, boasting 800,000 members on the books just before the Civil War and didn't begin to see significant decline until the 20th century, when after the World Wars, mainline Protestant churches had grown more lax about individual theologies of its members. Think about it. 800,000 people before the Civil War. The country's population wasn't that big, you know? Think about that in relation to the population in general. And the fact that these were folks on the books. How many of us come to church for years before signing the books? (laughs) You can only imagine how many people were, were in the pews. Blows my mind. We'd like you to sign the books more <laughs> with a greater urgency than waiting a few years. But <laughs> and then after the World Wars, why, if mainline Protestant Christianity became more lax about personal theologies, why would a Methodist or a Lutheran seek out another more radical faith tradition? Why bother if they could remain comfortably under the radar of their own? Why make new friends or find a different parking place in a different parking lot or start over? You don't have to. Now, Unitarian Universalism is one of the smallest U.S. denominations with its roots in Protestant Christianity. And Time Magazine and other mainstream media sources can sell the story, what if hell doesn't exist, calling this idea a, quote, intriguing scholarly trend. (laughs) With absolutely no mention of Unitarian Universalism, or simply Universalism for that matter. No mention of origin, Murray, De Beneville, Rich, Blue, or others. Surely our desired end is not to convert souls, but to make this world a better, more loving place. But where have we gone wrong when our enormous contributions, and they are plenty, 
Check out the poster in the foyer of notable Unitarians and Universalists. Our notable contributions to this nation's religious and political landscape, they can go so completely unnoticed, save for the few that have remembered our name for the purpose of condemning one of their own. Perhaps we religious liberal folk have grown too comfortable on the fringes and have lost some of that fire in our bellies that led Murray to pound the pulpit with his fist and brave angry mobs only to speak the truth that we, like God, should strive just to love one another. Where's that chutzpah? What part have we played in the decline of the power of our own message. Not unlike a typical Unitarian Universalist, we are culturally formed after all, are we not? I don't have any definite answers to these questions. Only more questions. But I do believe that the recent controversy and media attention of Bell's book calls us, as you use, to attention and begs us to ask these questions, to start these conversations, and perhaps most importantly, to take some kind of action, make ourselves more known, all for which I'm sure numerous committees and subcommittees shall be formed. We're good at that, after all. Perhaps part of the need is to bring our the need to bring our message of of loving acceptance more front and center and dust off the cobwebs a colleague once reflected perhaps obvious perhaps debatable unitarian is the adjective universalist is the noun i like that Perhaps it's time to stop shying away from talking about what universalism can mean for us in the 21st century. But does that conversation in the 21st century, does that stop with hell? Or do we try to figure out how we might have glimpses of heaven here on earth? Can love truly win if some of its greatest champions remain silent about the merits of such a loving theology. I'd like to leave you with the words of Universalist L.B. Fisher, who said almost 100 years ago, Universalists are often asked to tell where they stand. The only true answer to give to this question is that we do not stand at all. We move. I pray that we live up to his conviction. May it be so. Leave this room ready to move, not stand. Let's not let the message of love winning lose. Go in peace. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.